The sermon text is Mark chapter 3, verse 7 through 35, and you can find it on page 489 in the paperback Bibles. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea, and from Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to, those to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boandres, uh, that is the son of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the price of demons, he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, the house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his goods, Unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven and children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came. And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they went to him. Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. If you got a chance to listen while we were reading through the text just now, you probably noticed that this passage we are studying is a passage uh, filled with a lot of suggestions about who Jesus might be. There are demons who say that he's the son of God. There, his family comes up and they say that he's out of his mind. And then we have the scribes, the religious leaders there who say that he is possessed by a demon. And yet, amongst all of these suggestions, Jesus is the one who is making a definitive claim. Jesus is the one who says something clear. 
And it's not about his own identity, but it's about the identity of his followers. He says it at the very end of our passage in verse 32. It says, And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. That's what I want to focus on this morning. I want to focus on that idea of who we are in Christ. Now, I know there's some of you here who may not consider yourselves uh, Christians. Maybe you're still kind of exploring these things. But I want to encourage you that this message is for you as well, because the answer to that question, who are we in Christ, is actually an answer to a lot of questions. It's the answer to a lot of questions that we have in our mind, like, what are we here for? What is the purpose of this life? And what is Christianity really all about? What does Christianity promise us? At the heart of this declaration that Jesus makes at the very end of this passage are two very profound Christian doctrines. It's the doctrines of adoption and the doctrine of sanctification. And what I want us to do this morning is take those two things and and look at them in three parts. I want us to see how this passage shows us three things. That, That in Christ, through our adoption and sanctification, we are in God's family. Through Christ, we are able to do God's will. And through Christ, we have access to his transforming power. So we're in God's family, we're able to do his will, and we have access to his transforming power. So let's just get into it. Let's let's try to make our way through this text. Um, I said at the end, Jesus is is looking around, he's he's teaching, and he sees these people who are sitting near to him, and he makes this great declaration that these people sitting around me are my brother and sisters and mother. He says that my followers, their true identity is they are a part of my family. He says, if you are my follower, you are a member of the household of God. And so a good place to start might be to ask, how did they get there? How did these people find themselves in that position that Jesus would look at them and say, these people are my family members. These are my brothers and my sisters. Well, thankfully, Mark shows us the answer. He showed us in the chapter before this and the one before that. Jesus called them. That's how they got there. We saw it when he called Levi, and we saw it in chapter 1 when he called some of his other disciples. And more so than that, we have seen it in the life of every single person who has ever followed Christ since. Jesus called them. Jesus calls us. When, When we are off on our own, not thinking about him, when we are off concerned on our own needs, that's when Jesus speaks. Jesus speaks to our hearts, and he awakens within us a desire to follow him. God always does that. That's how God works. God calls us, and he awakens within us this desire to follow him that we did not have before. And as Americans, we don't really like that. Right? We, we don't like the idea that this is something that God initiated. We want to think that we, we did it ourselves. We want to think that, that we pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps. You know? 
We prefer the verse in Revelation where Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone opens the door and hears my voice, I will come to him and I will eat with him and he with me. We like to think that we were the ones who started it, that we were the ones that opened the door. And I've used this story before, but I think it's so good. Uh, Jack Miller, an old pastor, he said that, that that's how we like to think. And it is true, in fact, that we do have to open the door when Jesus comes to knock. But that's not our instinct. Our instinct isn't to open the door, but instead, when we hear Jesus at the door knocking, what we do is, well, we go and we, we grab the piano, right? And we push it in front of the door. And then we go and we get the fridge and we put it in front of the piano. And then we find every loose chair and book and we stack it on top of that, hoping that he won't be able to get inside. And then meanwhile, the Holy Spirit goes into the basement and starts a fire. <laughs> and the smoke starts to billow up and it starts to creep under the door frames and in the cracks. And we start to panic and we say, well, if I move the stuff and run for it, maybe I can get by him. And so we move things one by one, and then we dart out the door, and Jesus grabs us, and we say, I am so glad I made this decision. <laughs> That's how it happens. The Christian life always begins that way. The Christian life begins with a movement of God's grace. Jesus calls us. That's the first thing we see. The other thing we see here is that when he calls us, he gives us a new name. That when Jesus calls us, he gives us a new name. Now, all over this passage, there's a bunch of naming happening, right? From the, the demons, from the teachers, from his family members. All kinds of people are trying to assign different names to Jesus. And there's a reason for that. In the ancient world, it was believed that <clears throat> having, giving someone a name gave you some power over them. That if you knew someone's name, that you were able in some way to control them. So when you see this story that when the demons uh, encountered Jesus, they would say, you are the son of God. That's a little bit of what's happening there. There's this expectation that they might get control over him by saying his name. And you might think that's a little weird. We don't, maybe not think that way these days. But, but I'll tell you, uh, people still do think this way. I was uh, talking to a friend of mine who works for the Boston Police Department. And he said that one of their main strategies in dealing with the kids who are, are dealing drugs on the corner is to learn all their names. And whenever they pass by them, they say their names. And they talk to them and they give them, the, they let them be aware that they know who they are. <laughs> and their hope is that by, by speaking their names, it might give them a pause, maybe make them think twice before they decide to break the law. There is this negative power that comes along with knowing someone's name, this hope that we can control them, but there's also a positive power in it, right? As parents, we try to name our kids, uh, we try to give them names that show our hopes and aspirations for them, right? I mean, all of my kids, they have something about their name that says uh, what we hope that they might become. And that's the case today a little bit, but it was really the case in biblical times. Back then, when you named someone, it wasn't uh, just a matter of preference. It was a type of prophecy over them. It was a, a declaration of the kind of life they were going to live. And if you've been reading our Bible study, uh, our year-long Bible reading, 
We just went through the book of Genesis. Maybe you remember the story. It was talking about uh, Jacob and all of the children that were born to him. And the very last child that was born to Jacob was born of Rachel. And Rachel, when she was dying, gave birth to this son. She died in childbirth. And when she uh, named him, she named him Ben-Oni, which meant son of my sorrow. Now her husband Jacob loved her dearly. And yet when he received this child who she had named with her last breath, the first thing he did was rename it. He named him Ben-Yamin, Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. Because he knew that names had power. Names were more than just names. But even then, even back then, those names were just aspirations. Those names were just hope. They weren't a guarantee. You couldn't decide someone's life just by giving them a good name. And uh, Tim Keller, who's a, a pastor in New York, was really helpful in pointing this out. Um, but he says that, you know, that is not the way it is when God names people. It's not just an aspiration when God names something, right? Think about Genesis chapter 1. What happens when God speaks the name of something? It comes into being, right? God says, let there be light, and there is light. God's speech has power in it. God's naming has power in it. Psalm 33 says, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. That's why when we look at Mark today, the names we want to pay attention to are the names that Jesus gives. Because those names are by far the most significant ones. Uh, we read in verse 14 that in the midst of this crowd, in the midst of his popularity, Jesus takes his disciples and they go up to this mountaintop. And it says, he named them apostles. Now, if you notice in the text, it wasn't just a new title that he gave them. But in the moment when he named them apostles, it said that he gave them the authority to preach and to cast out demons. When Jesus names them apostles, it is a creative act. It is a word that comes with power. And while that little story, the story about the mountain, is a specific story to them, the pattern of it is true in the life of every believer. God calls us by his spirit. When he does that, he reveals our sin. He shows us our need for a savior. But then scripture tells us that when he does that, he changes us. Here's how Paul puts it. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now, don't get too distracted by the word son. Uh, don't get too caught up in that. In our passage, Jesus very clearly says sons and daughters and mothers. But Paul uses the word son to talk about what Jesus makes us because of what that meant back during that time. 
You see, a son in Paul's day was one, the one who inherited. The son was the one who bore the name of the father. The reason why Paul brings that up is because he wants to tell us that, that in Christ, all of us, male and female, become full inheritors of God. That we bear the name of God. It's like what we read uh, when Melissa read those Westminster questions to us. The question about adoption, it said, it is this process, it is this act of God's grace where we receive all the privileges of the sons of God. We get all of them. When Jesus calls us sons, he makes us sons by his spirit. And that means that there is no black sheep in God's family. There is no weird uncle in God's family. There is no one who's going to get cut out of the will by surprise. There is a guarantee of sonship in Christ's call. And that means that, that if Christ makes us sons, that means that we get to come to God not as an angry judge, but as a loving father. A heavenly father who cares about us, who has given us a new name. It means that our old identity is gone. We are not slaves to sin anymore. We are now his children. That's the first thing. We're sons. But there's a second reality that comes with this. And, and this, is, this is the next thing I want to talk about. There's a second reality that accompanies sonship. And that is the reality that, that we are able now to do God's will. We are now able to do God's will. So Jesus, he looks at this crowd and he says, my brother and sister and mothers are who? They're the people who do God's will. Luke, when he tells this same story, he says, my brother and my mother and my sisters are those who hear God's word and do it. Those who hear God's word and do it. Now, we got to be careful here. Whenever somebody starts to talk about a Christian's relationship with the commands of God, we've got to remember that we are dealing here in two different categories. Okay? The first category is something called uh, justification. The other is one called sanctification. Sanctification is this process, this process where we become holier and more obedient to God over time. <clears throat> justification, really quickly, is courtroom terminology. It's the idea of being declared innocent. Justification is the thing that happens to anyone that trusts in Christ. Anyone who turns to him for salvation. And it is, it is something that is very clearly not about our own effort, right? Justification is not about what we do. In fact, it's just the opposite. Justification is what happens when we realize that no matter how good we are, no matter how many good things we have done, there is nothing that is going to make us able to stand before a holy and righteous and perfect God. It's about that moment of recognition when we realize that our lives have been irreparably broken by worshiping the wrong things. 
That instead of worshiping God, we, we worship our, our jobs and our families and our relationships and our own pleasure. We've ruined our lives and there's nothing we can do to fix it. It's the recognition that only God can save us. Justification happens at that moment. That moment when the Spirit has set the fire in our basement and we repent and we look to Jesus' perfect record instead of our own. We say, I want His life for my life. I want His death instead of my death. It's that moment that gets described in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Do you know that verse? Paul says that God made Jesus, who had no sin, to become sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. Justification, it's the act of grace where he pardons all of our sins and he accepts us as righteous, as holy, as blameless in his sight, but it's not because of anything that we've done, but it's because of Christ's righteousness received by faith only. Justification, it happens in a moment, and it lasts for an eternity. That's the first category, and it's really important. Justification is really important, and we emphasize that all the time here at this church for good reason. But lately, I have been a little bit convicted that in our tradition, we haven't done the best job of, of showing you the fullness of God's grace. That in our effort to keep people away from legalism, right? And legalism is bad. Legalism is the idea, that false belief that somehow God's going to be impressed by your performance. But in our effort to protect people from legalism, we have made God's grace seem like less than it really is. Because we have downplayed an equally important, perhaps more important aspect of how his grace works in our life. And that is sanctification. That's the, the fancy word for it. Sanctification. Sanctification might be the most amazing thing about being in Christ's family. Sanctification might be the most awesome part of being considered his brother and sisters because Paul tells us it means that the Holy Spirit dwells in our hearts and gives us the desire to live for God's glory. In other words, in the gospel, God's grace doesn't just set us free in a big burst of forgiveness, and then the task of our life is to remember that. The task of our life is to constantly think back on that and remember that he's forgiven us and just try not to get too down on yourself when you screw up. His spirit doesn't just light the base, fire in your basement and then move on to the next house. God's grace frees us from the power of sin. And his spirit continues to work in our lives. It continues to transform us into those people that we long to be. Not just the people who know God's word, right? But like Jesus said, a people who do it, a people who are finally able to do the one thing the rest of the world can't, people who are able to do God's will. 
Here's how the Westminster puts it. It's what we read. Sanctification is a work of God's free grace where we are renewed in our whole being after the image of God. And we are enabled more and more to die to sin and to live to righteousness. And so here's what that means. Paul, he makes that great declaration in 2 Corinthians that we are in this new reality, that now Christ's righteousness counts for our righteousness, that all of our sin is put on him forever, that we never again in Christ have to worry about if God will be fed up with us and kick us out. We never have to worry if we have failed one too many times. Our record before him is always set. That's the good news. But then he says, since we have these promises, beloved, Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Part of the grace of God is that we now have the strength to fight. That's kind of an amazing thing to think, that that as we live, we are enabled more and more to die to sin and live to righteousness. That means that, that as our bodies decay... As we get older, as our hair gets gray, as our bones grow brittle, our soul gets stronger. (laughs) Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to give you the impression that it gets easier. I don't want to tell you that. I don't want you to think that that this, this thing Paul's talking about, cleansing ourselves, bringing holiness to completion, is, is something that will come easily. It won't. Sometimes it is a war. It is a war with our old desires. It is a war with our old instincts. It is a war with some of the strongest temptation that you may have ever felt. It is a war with, with Scripture shows us, with Satan himself. And that's why when you read Paul's letters, you find him saying things like, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of the faith. He says, I discipline my body and I make it my slave. (laughs) Sometimes being a people who do God's will is a real struggle. Sometimes it requires a fight. But here's why I'm making a big deal of this. Here's why I want to make sure that you hear me, because in our passage, we see this account where Jesus is casting out demons And the teachers come and they accuse him of being possessed by a demon. And he responds, you can look at it with me in verse 23 and 27. He says, how can Satan cast out Satan? No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Jesus says, are you guys crazy? The reason I can do this stuff is because I am the one who has bound Satan and I am the one who has come to defeat Satan. And Scripture tells us that over and over and over again that on the cross, Jesus defeated him. That because of the cross, Satan is a vanquished enemy. But you know, I'm worried. I am concerned that a lot of Christians, 
maybe a lot of us in this room are surrendering to a vanquished enemy. You know, the Super Bowl is tonight. I'm sure you've heard. Our beloved Patriots, the team that I'm sure everyone in this room is cheering for with their whole heart tonight, uh, are playing the Atlanta Falcons. And uh, a couple weeks ago, they beat the, the Steelers to get to the AFC Championship. And as I was thinking about this, I, just, I was thinking what it would be like tonight if, if at 6 o'clock, you know, Bill Belichick came out and got on TV and he said, we're not going to play the game. We've been, we've been thinking about it, and we are just too afraid of the Steelers. They are so tough, <laughs> and we're worried they might beat us. Right? That'd be pretty dumb, right? Because the Steelers can't win. The Steelers are eliminated by the rules of the game. There is no chance for them to win the game. Now, they might march on the field, and they might beat a few of them up, right? <laughs> but they're not going to win. They can no longer compete for the title. That part has been decided. I get worried that many of us live like that, that we are living in defeat, that we have stopped fighting, that we've resigned ourselves again to slavery. I worry that we've decided that we're never going to be strong enough, that real freedom from the things that, that cling to us is just a pipe dream. But folks, it's not true. Jesus has bound the strong man through his death and resurrection. And you know what else? That same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in everyone who comes to him for salvation. If you belong to him, if you are in his family, if he calls you brother and sister, then you are defined by your ability, not just to hear God's will, but to do it. You can do it through the power of his spirit that dwells in you. That's who you are. So how do we do it? <laughs> I think that's the, the natural place we have to go now. This is the third thing I want to, to talk about. The third thing we, we know is that as Christ's family, we have access to his transforming power. As members of Christ's family, we have access to his transforming power. Now, there is a paradox here that we're dealing with. There is a paradox in the Christian life. And you know, that Super Bowl analogy isn't really the best one because that's not totally what the Christian life is like. It's not nearly as clean cut as wins and losses. The truth is, in the Christian life, you will always wrestle with sin. You will always be at great risk. We can never expect that we're going to reach the point where we have achieved and attained perfection. Um, we use the Westminster catechism to help us learn some doctrines, but there are a few good catechisms. One of those is the Heidelberg Catechism. And the Heidelberg's known for being a little bit more pastoral, maybe a little easier to follow along with. And it has a great question, maybe a question you're asking right now. Can any Christian keep God's commandments perfectly? 
Can any Christian keep God's commandments perfectly? And the answer has two parts, and they are so helpful. The first part is this, no. (laughs) It says, even the holiest people in this life have only the small beginning of this obedience. Even the holiest among us have only just the smallest beginning of obedience. Now, maybe that sounds discouraging, <laughs> but anyone who's been a Christian for more than five minutes knows that it's true, right? We, we recognize that, that, that the progress we make in holiness, it just always seems so small. But the thing is, we're not, it's not that we fail to progress. It's not that we don't make forward progress. Instead, what it is is as we walk with Jesus, we come to realize that holiness and what holiness means is constantly growing. Our understanding of what it means to be holy becomes much bigger than we originally thought. Think about it this way. Say there is some big, obvious outward sin that you struggle with in your life. Uh, Maybe alcoholism, for instance. Something that that everyone can see, something that that affects all of your relationships, something that, that hinders you, and you come to faith. And by God's grace, slowly he begins to give you victory over that sin. And say you come to the place where where you you start to see extended victory, that maybe you're sober for one year or five years or ten years. But at that moment, do you realize now that you have become a perfect person? Is that what you start to see, that that all your problems are gone and now you've reached perfection? No. No, when you get rid of those big sins, what you find is they were just obscuring the things you really needed to deal with. That they were just the, the tip of the iceberg of this much greater depth of depravity that was always in your heart. And not only that, but as you walk with Jesus and as you experience his grace and mercy in your failures, as you realize how abundant his love is for you, you come to realize that that his holiness is a lot bigger than you thought it was. And so while on the outside, people might see you from day to day and they say objectively, you've gotten a lot better. You're a lot more together. I'm really proud of you. On the inside, you realize you're more of a mess than you ever thought. (laughs) You realize what this question is saying, that your progress in holiness is only very small, even though it was the one thing you had been hoping for. There's still a long way to go. That's the first half of the question. The second half, then, is this. It says, can any Christian keep God's commands perfectly? No. Even the holiest people in this life have only a small beginning. But then it says, nevertheless, with all seriousness of purpose, they do begin to live according to all, not only some, of God's commandments. It says, nevertheless, even though you only make it a little way, we do live in such a way that we can be obedient to all of God's commandments. And so that's the last thing we need to think about here. What does that mean? What does that mean to to have all seriousness of purpose? Like Heidelberg put it. What does it mean to have all seriousness of purpose in our pursuit of holiness? 
Or maybe I should ask, where do we get the strength to fight? Well, we've already established the facts, right? Justification and sanctification, adoption, they all come from the same place. They come from the same source. And the source is what? The grace of God. You did not save yourself because suddenly you were able to try harder. We have to realize that, that the answer to this question is not just try harder. It can't be. Just like you weren't saved by trying harder, Scripture tells us you are not sanctified simply by trying harder. You're saved by grace. You are saved by an act of God's grace. And it says you are sanctified by a work of God's grace. This ongoing and continuous process of God's grace working in us. So that means if you want to be this kind of person, if you want to be someone who not only hears God's will, but does God's will, you need more grace. You need to go to the places where God has told us his grace can be found. You need to go here. You need to go to his word, and you need to pursue what the Bible calls the means of grace. You need to saturate your mind with the truth in here. This is where he's going to give you the power to deal with the delusions of the devil. This is where he's going to transform your mind and give you a new mind. You know what else you need to do? You need to belong to the church. You need to be a part of the communion of the saints. You need to fellowship with people who are sinners like you. People who can remind you of the truth in the hard times. People who can fight alongside of you, who can pull you when you can't walk. And the last thing we need to do is we need to come here. We need to come here to this table and we need to feast on Jesus. We need to come here every week and experience the power of forgiven sins. That even though our progress in this life might seem very small and sometimes it feels like we're going the wrong way, we're still welcomed at this table. That we have a Savior who is perfect whose sanctification was complete, and he gave himself in our place. And not only that, but he gave his strong spirit to dwell in our weak flesh. And he's given us his status as sons and daughters, people who are invited and welcomed to the feast. So that's where we find the strength. And that's what I want to invite us to do this morning. I want us to come to the only place we can. I want to invite us to run to the means of grace. I want us to come today to this table and, and find Jesus, our Savior, and our brother. Let's pray. Father, we are, are grateful for your word, and we are grateful for the truth that you, you show us through it. Lord, that your intention was not only to set us free, but to make us your own. Lord, I thank you that the declaration that, that your people are those who do your will is not a noose around our necks. 
It is not a death sentence. It is not there to make us feel guilty. It is the promise that has been guaranteed. And Lord, we long for the day when sin and Satan are finally gone from this world. We long for the day when it's easy. But for now, while it's hard, would you give us your grace? Would you minister to us through your mercy? Would you allow us to come and throw our lives down at your feet? Father, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.